Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleased to say that joining us in London to continue the conversation ahead of tomorrow's general election, Roger Boodle joins us now, Capital Economics founder and chairman. Good day to you, Roger. Great to see you. Hello. Just walk me through what's at stake in the next 24 hours. Well, it's difficult to exaggerate how important this election is. I think, on the whole, elections don't make much difference, by the way. At least UK ones don't, because in the end, the politicians do much the same thing. This election is not like that. And uh, I mean, on the left, and the Labour Party, the leader of the Labour Party, is effectively a sort of Marxist. His right-hand man is a Marxist. Uh, if they were to form a government, we would have policies in this country more left-wing than anything we've ever seen before. Now, on the other side, the Conservatives is going to be much the same as we've had over the last five years. To be very clear here, Roger, that's not an accusation. They are very open about being socialists. They're oh. very open about being extremely left-wing. Yes, I and mean, I don't support them, uh, but it, you know they, they, they don't make any secret of it. I mean, these guys make uh, some US politicians that we all know, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, they make them seem like outright right-wingers. We're talking about nationalising areas of the economy much more than we've ever seen before, perhaps since the 1970s. What's interesting about this particular period of UK politics for me, Roger, going back to the election in 2015, we've now had three of them in around about four years. In 2015, Ed Miliband was the leader of the opposition, the Labour Party. They said he was too left-wing. And then they went further left. What does that tell you about the state of politics right now, that we're experiencing this shift to the extremes, not just in the United Kingdom, but in the United States as well? Yeah, I wouldn't actually say that in the UK we are seeing a shift to the extremes. We are in regard to the Labour Party, but interestingly, at the same time, the Conservative Party, if anything, is moving towards the centre. Very interesting, this, I think. The Conservatives, we don't know, of course, exactly what they're going to do if they do get a majority, but in what they've been saying recently, at least in terms of economic policy, they've been moving leftwards towards more public spending, concentrating yeah. on public services. Interesting, that. How do you have a stimulus-driven, a fiscal space-driven Conservative? That seems important. Uh, Greg Vallier, again, writing about $1 trillion deficits in the United States. But in Germany, in France, in the United Kingdom, how can a conservative be pro-stimulus? Well, I think it's quite easy for that actually to happen. Of course, in the States, you've had it in the past. What about the Reagan tax cuts? Now, admittedly, all this was justified in terms of supply side uh, economics yeah. rather than demand. But still, you had more borrowing, uh, deliberate borrowing by the government, by a conservative government. Uh, I think over here, the difference is that circumstances have changed so much. When you've got a very big debt and the deficit's extremely high and the markets are very wary, a conservative government will be worried worried about spending and borrowing more. But that's not the position we're in. The deficit's down. The markets are desperate to lend to the government. And I think it's about time that we borrowed more for investment. It depends what you spend the money on. And this, I think, is a big yeah, difference. Yeah, that's a key distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Going forward from here, the big, big focus for a lot of people outside the United Kingdom won't just be on the future of austerity. It'll be on the path towards Brexit. Roger, walk me through the kind of different paths that are available to the UK within the next 12 months or so off the back of this election. 
Well, let's assume, first of all, that the Conservatives form a majority government. Then we know pretty much that we're going to leave the EU on the 31st of January, so very soon. But that really, frankly, only sorts out part of the issue because, according to Boris Johnson's deal, he's then going to negotiate with the EU to try to get a free trade agreement by the end of next year, by the end of 2020. And he said that if he doesn't get a deal, then he's not going to seek an extension to this transition. A lot of people don't believe that, by the way. Now, of course, if that happens, let's say we don't get a deal and he doesn't get the extension, then Britain's in the sort of no-deal territory where we then have to uh, trade with the EU, presumably on WTO terms. Now, if, if, if Labour wins, their policy, by the way, is rather confused on Brexit, but we understand they're going to try and renegotiate Boris's deal with the EU. Good luck on that one. And then have yet another referendum in the UK. So we're going to have, in that case, I think, prolonged uncertainty. The UK has 12 months to negotiate a free trade agreement with the European Union. It took the Canadians about seven years. Mm. Can you do these kind of things in 12 months? Well, I think the answer is yes, you can. Uh, as far as the economics is concerned, I think it's deadly simple. After all, we already have effectively a, a deal with the EU. It's called free trade plus bells and whistles. Mm -hmm. We don't have any tariffs or barriers. That's the starting point. So I think given the political will, I think it's dead easy to do actually mm -hmm. within 12 months. But that's the big if. You know, Is there going to be the political will? And I think you're going to see mm -hmm. massive wrangling on both sides, actually. What kind of conservative is the new Boris Johnson. I understand as a foreigner there's three or four Boris Johnsons that can mm. be said of a lot of At politicians. Least. What kind of conservative is he for 2020? Depends what um, newspaper you read, doesn't mm. it, Roger? Well, well Tom, it's a, Tom, it's a great question. I think that, I did frankly, okay there. Farrell gave me the question. The, the, the truthful answer is we don't know. I mean, you listen to him sometimes, and he calls himself a one-nation conservative, which I guess is a bit close in American terms to almost being a liberal, uh, pro-public spending. Uh, and then other times, he's very much in favour of free markets, and he has been known to wax lyrical about the importance of tax cuts and supply-side. Oh. you got to come back. Roger Boodle, thank you so much. Thank for you, Capital Roger. economics Pleasure. and writing for the uh, Telegraph as well. Uh, always interesting and out with an important new book, The AI Economy. We'll dive into that here. It's getting some rave uh, reviews. Right now, this is fascinating. She writes for the Financial Times, but far more than that has an exceptionally extinguished uh, uh, resume of not only policy, but just thinking, John, and doing how you change things. And that's rare, to say the least. Should we bring her in? Absolutely. Camilla Cavendish joining us now, the former head of policy for UK Prime Minister David Cameron. Camilla, great to have you with us on the programme. Let's just begin the conversation where we started it just a little bit earlier on this hour. What is at stake with this general election in the next 24 hours? Uh, a lot is at stake, which is why a lot of people are actually going to turn out and vote, because this election represents um, two polls. I mean, it used to be said that all politicians were the same. Uh, that is certainly not true in this election. We have a Conservative Party which is bent on delivering Brexit, and their slogan is Get Brexit Done. And we have a Labour Party which is further to the left than anything we've seen for 40 years and possibly for longer, which would impose a Marxist vision upon the state. And Camilla, on top of that, we have this really weird situation in many, many constituencies where there are traditional Labour strongholds but voted leave. Then we have these traditional Conservative strongholds 
that voted Remain. They're regarded as the marginal seats, many of them. Camilla, how do you expect that to play out as the results start to come through? Well, so this is one of the things that makes it really hard to predict. So the Conservatives are trying to breach what they call Labour's red wall of seats, which have traditionally been working-class Labour-held seats in the Midlands and the north of England. Many of those voters voted to leave the European Union. They're very patriotic. They think Jeremy Corbyn is anti-American, anti-NATO, and is not a patriot. And the Conservatives think they can win quite a lot of those people back. As you said, of course, there may also be a swap from the other direction, which is quite a lot of Remainers, particularly in London and the South, may vote Liberal Democrat or may, they may vote Labour. So how complex does that but make I campaigning think, in the last day well, really of campaigning? Complex. And of course, um, you know, we now know that, I mean, most parties are doing this micro-targeting. I mean, it's all about individual seats. They're running slightly different campaigns in different seats, to be honest. Um, there's a lot of social media. The Conservatives have a lot of money to spend. They are spending a great deal of it today in the last couple of days of the campaign. And their social media strategy, I think, has improved a lot. Um, You know, the current prediction is that the Conservatives will get a majority. Uh, The main question is how big and how big it is does make a lot of difference because that makes a lot of difference to whether Boris Johnson can get his withdrawal agreement through Parliament really easily and whether he can sort of unshackle himself from his right wing. If, If there wasn't breakfast... Uh, bre- breakfast? Is that breakfast, what it's called? Bre- Brexit. Brexit? Brexit. Brexit. Lady you know, many, if, if many people were, call it breakfast. If there wasn't breakfast, <laughs> what would be the Conservative manifesto? I mean, is there such uh, a thing between London elite conservatives and everybody else out there that's not London elite conservatives? That's a really interesting question, which actually most people are not asking because everybody's obsessed with Brexit. Yeah, um, breakfast. You're right to ask it. I mean, the Conservative manifesto was deliberately written this time to be uh, fairly low-key, not give any headlines, not actually give very many clues as to what the rest of the prospectus looks like. Um, It is quite heavy with spending pledges, so we now know that both parties, I mean, Britain is shifting in the direction of spending more money. Under Cameron and Osborne, you know, you saw a serious tackling of the deficit after the financial crisis. Um, We've actually, they came out of that in 2016 with a pretty strong economy and record high employment. Um, But, you know, the voters are wanting greater spending on public services and quite a lot of voters are prepared to pay more tax. So we're going to see a more interventionist okay. state, I think, whoever wins. But um, you're right to ask the question, you know, kind of what do the Tories stand for beyond Brexit? Well, at the moment, their campaign is all about two things. One is get Brexit done and the other one is keep Jeremy Corbyn out. And they seem to think that is enough to win. Let's take it one step further, Camilla. Who is the party of the working class now? If you'd asked me 10, 20, 30 years ago, I would have said Labour. Um, Similar conversation taking place in the United States at the moment as well, which is fascinating. Who is the party of the working class in the United Kingdom? Yeah, well, it's and you're right. I spend a lot of time in the States. It's the same question. Um, Look, I think the Tories aspire to be the party of the working class. A lot of working class voters may lend them their support at this election. But whether they can hang on to that support in the long term is a really big question. And whether they can, as you say, bridge the gap uh, between the classes is a big question. 
But look, we need to bridge that gap because whoever becomes prime minister needs to govern for the whole country. And we have too many people left behind in this country. So I do think it is completely plausible that the Conservatives could be the party of the aspiring working class and the lower middle class, which is what Mrs. Thatcher was all about. Conservatives in America are having no trouble embracing fiscal space. It's called trillion dollar deficits. Do you perceive that (laughs) the Conservatives a la Cameron, the Conservatives a la Johnson, the Conservatives Conservatives, all of the conservative of a decade now, can embrace fiscal space? Well, I mean, Cameron was a fiscal conservative. You know, he bore down on the deficit. Uh, the opposition have used that very effectively against the conservatives because of austerity, uh, you know, which has had some impact uh, on you know, people in the lower socio-demographic groups. But no, everybody's embracing fiscal space, to use your terminology. I mean, you know, you've got low interest rates. Uh, whoever comes into power will borrow a lot. They will fund massive infrastructure spending. And so like the the conser- is, if we're going to leave the EU, we need a fiscal stimulus. I mean, we aren't going to need to get through this. There's likely to be an economic downturn anyway in the cycle. If you look at the EU, yeah. uh, the EU economies are slowing. So we're going to have a fiscal stimulus in some form. And Camilla, before we let you go, I'd like to focus on something that I know you're passionate about. Public health. The NHS is at the epicentre <laughs> of this election for many, many people. Yeah. Walk me through how you're thinking about that particular subject and your thoughts on how the Conservative Party in its current form have tackled it. Well, you're right. NHS is the next biggest issue after Brexit. Um, We have an ageing population. We have huge demand on our service. We have a lot of immigration to this country. Um, We have low morale of doctors and we have a particular problem about pensions in the health service at the moment, which just means a lot of doctors are not able to do as many hours as they should. Um, There is huge concern. Actually, underneath all of that, there is serious reform going on in the health service where we are beginning in some places to join up health with social care, which is basically care for the elderly, which is the bit that's kind of fallen off and been forgotten about. Um, You know, whoever comes into power, if the Tories come to power, I mean, they will spend more money on the health service. Health service Mm -hmm. spending has been increasing in real terms, just not very much. Um, What they have to do is also grasp the reform narrative, which the insiders are promoting. But, you know, it's so political in this country. I mean, you have a different healthcare system over there, but our healthcare system, which is very precious to us and is free at the point of need, is very, very political. And so making any change to it, even if you're trying to make it better, is fraught with difficulty. Lady Cavendish, thank you so much. Baroness Cavendish of Little Venice with us today. And, of course, her work for David Cameron, uh, what seems long ago uh, and far away. Our next guest is one of our most popular guests because even if you don't get fixed income, you haven't read your Fabozzi cover to cover, everybody leans forward when she talks she does. about the coupon. She just breaks it down really, really nicely yeah. for everyone. And we yeah. always get positive feedback when she comes on the program. So guess what? We got her back. Lali Top Charlie, J-O-H-C-M, Senior Fund Manager. Good morning to you, Lali. Good morning. It's very lonely here without you guys. I'm sorry. We'll be back very soon. I promise. A Federal Reserve decision coming up later this afternoon. The least anticipated Fed decision of the year so far for some people, Lale. Will you be going to lunch or paying attention? If you're paying attention, what to? Um, You know, I think you're right. It is the least anticipated because I think they made it clear that they're going to be on hold from a rate perspective. So I think what will really matter is the commentary. Look, and I think you've seen the BIS report that came out. Obviously, um, Zoltan uh, Peace has just taken over the Internet, I think, on what he wrote on the repo. 
um, you know, I think people will focus on the commentary on on that part, whether they see any problems or um, they, and if they see anything, will they do something about it? Let's talk about what they're doing with the balance sheet currently. Lali, there's a massive debate about this as to whether it is QE, whether it isn't QE, whether the market thinks it's QE. What are you telling people? How do you characterise the current operations from the Federal Reserve at the moment and that expanding balance sheet? It's not QE because it's not creating excess reserves. Um, so it's definitely not QE. Uh, the way it would be QE is they extend it out on the curve um, but at this point, I think Powell has been, Chairman Powell has been very clear that he does not see this as QE. And I think he's right. The, do you see the market, Lali, behaving as if it is QE? I think the market is behaving with the notion that the central bank put globally is here and it's here to stay. I think that's a very strong narrative. It's an unpredictable narrative <clears throat> because it can change. Um, but I don't think the market necessarily sees it yeah. as QE. The, I'm looking at five-year, five-year forwards, which is one gauge of inflation, folks, out 10 years for the United Kingdom, for the United States, and for Europe. And I believe the chairman's going to be able to go in and say today global inflation is, is the word Greenspan would use, quiescent. How quiescent do you observe inflation as you look at all those spread dynamics in the fixed income market? Um, we have, it's been more prominent in our company conversations on the labor side, um, specifically. Um, the labor pressure, I think, has been acute for a whole year now, where companies are actually having difficulty um, sourcing labor. And it's actually quite interesting because, as you know, you know, typically when a company runs into a challenge, whether it's because of tariffs or um, cyclical or secular yeah. pressures, labor goes first. Um, but there have been really hesitancy on the part of companies to tackle labor because they're actually afraid that they won't be able to find the labor back, which is fascinating. So I think the companies are on a holding pattern. We're certainly seeing the labor pressure, and I think you're, you're seeing it in the financial results. It, it's pressuring a little bit. Um, and I think that seems, it seems like that, that's here to stay. I, I mean, to me, it's absolutely fascinating that the wage elasticity isn't there this time around. What would happen if companies just raised wages? What would that do to the architecture of our fixed income markets? <laughs> well, it depends by industry. So labor is not always a large component of, of the cost. Um, so for the labor intensive ones, it will, it will certainly um, you know, impact the gross margins. Um, and anything that's labor intensive in the services or in the you know, retail, et cetera, um, you're also seeing uh, the tariff pressure yeah. as well. So you kind of get this jaw impact um, and it would certainly impact. But look, I mean, I think high yield, if you're in the secularly challenged sectors, you already have pretty large hurdles. So there will just be icing on the cake, to be perfectly frank about it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in some of these industries, they already trade at what I would call to be distressed levels. U.S. So, high yield has returned 13 percent almost in really? 2019. I didn't know that. Corporates and investment grade, what are they up, 14, 15 percent? Yeah, duration now. helps, yeah. Is this an answer real <laughs> yield? Un unbelievable. No, I wanted to talk to Lali's world right now, yeah. credit, just to wrap this conversation up. We've been in this really interesting trading range through 2019 on high yield spreads of between 350 and 450. We get down to 350, we bounce back up to 450. We're back down to 350 again, Lali. 
What does that mean to you right now, just where spreads are? Really, really tight. The tights of the year once more. Where's this going? <laughs> it just means you go buy some three-month treasury bills and keep rolling it forward. Um, and that's actually the beauty of the tight spreads, because by going into higher quality, you give up 50 or 100 pips, but you pick up an entire optionality, because over six months, losing you know, half of 50 bips or 100 bips is not going to make a big determin determination on your overall portfolio performance. And if you're right, then we have a volatility event, then, then you have like a huge upside and you're able to deploy cash. I think 2020, if it stays put where we are, it's very hard to see stellar returns out of credit. And I think most people frame it as a coupon clipping years. And I got news for you. Every time somebody says coupon clipping <laughs> year, it never works. Are you thinking about being a liquidity provider then, so to speak, going into 2020, waiting for those dislocations to take advantage of them? We'll wait for the dislocations. Um, and you have to define, you know, there's no blanket statement, right? It depends what else is happening in the world and how the world is changing. So a high yield, you know, I'll leave you with this final thought. I think everybody focuses on the triple C's and, and how bad it is. But it's actually, if even if you look at the double B's, which I think is ridiculously rich, you also have another different phenomena from the lack of covenants, right? Most people look at lack of covenants in a high quality. They go, why do I care? This company is really good. It's very high quality. The problem is if it's a public company and their stock performance suffers because, you know, equity analysts do actually look at EBIT and operating income, none of this adjusted EBITDA nonsense, which is fictitious as we talked about. Um, you actually take on event risk, whether the company goes private, whether the company actually spins off an asset. And guess what? Because the covenants are so loose, you have absolutely no claim on that cash flow. The high yield market has structurally changed, in my opinion, based on this loosey-goosey documentation we've seen. Now let's have Charlie. Lucy Goosey is CFA level four. <laughs> she's she's yeah. CFA level five. Yeah. Lali's fantastic. Lali Top Charlie, JOHCM, senior yeah. fund manager. Lali, if we don't catch up with you, <clears throat> enjoy the holidays. Been great catching up with you through 2019. A fantastic Lally, contribution so to this program. Yeah, very My much, pleasure. Very hugely, hugely valuable. This is a joy, not because it's Wendy Schiller of Brown University, and yes, the topic is impeachment, but because of the authority. It was just a few years ago, she wrote an exceptionally important weighty textbook, Gateways to Democracy. And at the time, it was accessible. You could reach out and actually touch the fabric of our American political science. It's as if we had to drag gateways of democracy from 1980 forward to the present. What's our gateways to democracy of this impeachment process, Professor Schiller? I mean, if you had to rewrite that classic book today, what would you write about the impeachment process? Well, I mean, the, the, the point of the impeachment process, or the struggle for the House, is to exert oversight on the president. And basically, that there's boundaries, there's limits on executive power. And this president has vocally said, I don't really see it. And he's right. In the Constitution, it's a vague document. You know, he's got a lot of formal power in the Constitution, not legislative, but executive. And there aren't a lot of things proscribed. In other words, saying you can't do this and you can't do that. And so whatever he thinks is in the national interest, including his own reelection, you know, might fly. So I think the, the point of the impeachment is to say that we have three branches of government and that the founders wanted the House to have oversight. Whether you think this amounts to removable offense, 
That's your opinion. But this is structural. And if the House doesn't do anything and the Senate doesn't do anything and the president does exercise yeah. power, you know, there's no control. And that is not the intent of the system. And that's how, the important message of, of impeachment. Then what do you do or how do you respond, rather, to your students in classrooms saying, why don't you just wait and vote the bum out the next time around? Um, because uh, it's it's signal sending, basically, right? I mean, it's not just four years. You know, Hamilton said, let's, you know, let's make the president a monarchy, you know, a, basically a lifetime appointment. What's the problem? And he got a lot of pushback. So he said, OK, how about four years? Because it's in between the Senate's term and the House's term. It's long enough to do something, but not enough damage. And then the people can reelect the person. You know, it seems reasonable. But that four years with a government of our size, with a government of our power, yeah. the government can do a great deal of damage. It's not, you know, 1789 yeah. anymore. So that's the point. The point is they also, just in case, gave the House oversight power and the power to impeach right. and remove. And that's the point. And a power that's never exercised is a power without practice. Yeah. So that's the point of it. Whether we think this is, you know, worth the time and effort, I think that's what this, that's what gets decided at the polls. That's what gets decided, yeah. you know, at the election time. Charles, you know, if the House knew yeah. that, that he could be convicted and acquitted. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, convicted and removed. You, you know, I'm not sure the Democrats would have moved. Interesting. Forward. It's unclear uh, to me. Charles from Iowa emails in and says, you t- Tom, you shouldn't call the president a bum. That's an old phrase, John. And I was well, thinking I'm, I'm of hoping it. that that's not what you were doing. No, it's an old phrase. And I was thinking of it because Garrett Cole just signed for a gazillion dollars with the Yankees. And sometime this year when he gives up four runs, you know, with no outs, someone will say, that will be the, the headline. Yeah, the that's pages. the context of it. Wendy, how do we draw a distinction between playing electoral politics and defending the Constitution? Well, because it's not actually clear that it's good electoral politics for the Democrats. I mean, I think that's the sort of thing that Nancy Pelosi has on her side. This is still a gamble. This only rallies their base, but that's it. And it's not clear what the effect will be on independents, particularly suburban voters. And we know that in at least five states, they're going to be absolutely key to winning or losing those states for the Democratic nominee. Plus, it puts the Ukraine-Biden issue out there for the next you know, 11 months. This is a big gamble. Now there's a Ukraine-Biden issue with Hunter. Who knew about that eight months ago? Nobody. And now if Biden's the nominee, it just covers the Democratic nomination process and the general election. So I think it's not at all clear that it's an electoral win for the Democrats outside their base, which is why the argument can stand that there's another reason that they're doing it. Wendy, just as a final question, that issue is out there for Biden. And for his son, do you think they've done a good job of explaining? Um, no, not yet. And if he is the nominee, to the, his own party doesn't really care. But if he's the nominee, it's going to be an ever-present question. He'll have to come up with an answer. And people may say, you know what, we're t- we'll take the person we know, at least most of the investigations are over, versus the person who might have four years of investigation. Same problem Hillary Clinton had. So I think it's a much bigger problem for Biden than Democrats anticipate right now. Wendy, thoughtful stuff. We'll have to get you back on the program. Wendy Schiller there, Brown University Chair of Political Science, wanging on the latest in Washington, D.C. A consideration of the American economy. We can do that with David Blanchflower. He is at Dartmouth College with his experience at the Bank of England, but far more. Danny Blanchfar has defined labor economics with his classic The Wage Curve of years ago and his recent work on America's underemployed. Danny, just to get the Fed out of the way before we dive into your labor work that you've done so well recently, 
Is the Fed working with an operative theory? There was M1, M2 monetarism, and then there was a Phillips curve harkening back to LSE in the 50s. Is there an actual codified theory right now, or is every central bank making it up as they go? Well, I think they're making it up as they go. And I went to a conference at Brookings about a month or so ago where all the big names were there, Bernanke and Yellen and Krugman and everybody, all trying to think about why it is that inflation has been so low and the central bank forecasting is going to rise. And basically, you come to the conclusion, nobody has a clue. So I think that's really where we are. And if we look back, remember, we had eight rate rises from 15 to 18 with an expectation of three rises in 19 and four in 20. So that's really reversed itself. Um, and we're now right. in the position, essentially, where the central bank just says, we don't know what we're doing, we're going to sit pat, and we're going to wait for the data. Yeah. So the yeah. forecasts essentially are gone. They, they, they just don't know how to forecast this. So really, they're sitting waiting, and they're going to respond if something bad hits. I think that's really where we are. Danny, you got this right. Okay, some things you get right, some things you get wrong. I've actually sat yeah. in your lectures in Hanover where you have talked about the mystery of what's out there. Is it technology? I mean, can we just say we have good monitors of all political persuasions from the late Marvin Goodfriend and the late Paul Volcker out to the very living Krugman and Blanche Flower? Do we just have good people grappling with modern technology? I, I don't know. I mean, I think we can go back and go back 100 years and we probably said the same thing, Tom. I think what we really got here is that we were hit by a financial crisis, and people have underestimated that. I mean, we've really had two in 100 years, right? We had, we had the 1929 crash, and we had the one in 2008, which seems to have changed everything. And so the sort of standard rules that applied then don't apply now. I mean, if you think Volcker, Volcker came into a world of union power, raging inflation, and you, and you had to go in there and sort of grapple with that. The danger is that people still have that in their head, this new world, where actually our problem is exactly the opposite. We can't create any inflation. Same story in Europe, same story in the UK, same story around the world. And the other story is that we also focus not just on inflation, we focused on unemployment as our indicator of labor market slack. And we've basically heard Powell this week saying, well, the reality is we got that wrong. As I kept saying, all the, I've said on your program so many times, they got the You've said that for much of the last hard. decade, that's Danny. Just, that's the world that changed. Danny, you've been very good at making labor market dynamics very accessible for everyone, very simple. So let me ask you a basic question. What is this economy doing producing 266,000 jobs in the latest payrolls report? Where's that coming from and what does it tell you? Well, John, I think, I think that's obviously um, something we hadn't really expected um, around the world. But I guess we should put that in context, that if we just look at the employment rate, so let's just, you know, you take, you take the population of people over the age of 16, you say, what proportion of them are employed? Yes, we've created jobs, but we aren't back. We're a couple of percentage points below where we were in 2008 and about four percentage points lower than we were at the, at the early part of the 2000s. So in a sense, you'd say this is a slow recovery. You know, jobs are still being created, but the types of jobs, not high paid enough, particularly because people can't get enough hours. They've got a job, they'd like to be a 40-hour week, and they've got 23. So I think that's not something we would have expected 
But I think um, I think the well, fact we should look back and say employment rates are below where they okay, were a decade ago. Danny, this is critical. Then we can say, good very quickly. Good employers can say we got to go to part time or lesser hours because of health care yes. and benefit costs. And everybody else saying, look, we need more full time workers. Do we need to legislate a return to greater full time work? Would that get it done, or is that just a dream? Well, I think we've got incentives for full time work, but I would push back against the it's the healthcare thing. I mean, in many senses. The issue is global, um, right. but yes, I think we have the somehow or other. I mean, we've got to give incentives for firms to hire people. I mean, if you think why why are firms making using technology? The answer is for a labour economy well, is because the relative price mm. of labour is too high. So a simple right. fix is to stop this thing where machines replace people, lower the relative price of work. Okay. Danny, I'm out of time. We got to leave it there. We will continue this discussion. David Blanchflower's contribution to labor economic. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.